there really were no differences of opinion on anything based on political party. Now, with regard to the investigation, obviously, in casual conversation within the office, we would have fun talking about politics, and there were very different views among Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives. But in terms of the you know, investigation, while obviously there were differences of opinion on how to proceed with certain things or what strategy or tactics to use, it was never based on political or party affiliation. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to a very special live episode of All Things Investigations. Today, we're thrilled to be joined by John Wood, a former Hughes Hubbard partner and investigative counsel at the January 6th committee. We have Mike DeBernardis back. Mike and I have done lots of pods together. So with that introduction, Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah. Thanks, Tom. And thanks, John, for coming on with us today. So we're going to talk today about your work on the January 6th committee. And I think the audience is going to be pretty interested as we dive through this. But I guess to start, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved at the time you were general counsel of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. So how'd you shift into this role? Yeah, like a lot of things in life, there's an element of chance to it. And in this case, I knew Liz Cheney from my time in the Bush administration because I worked closely with her husband at the Justice Department, at the White House, and at the Department of Homeland Security. And so he's the one actually who told me that Liz Cheney was looking to hire some people for the committee, and I expressed interest in it. So in terms of, if I could go into it, John, the planning, how did you organize the approach to your investigation? How collaborative was that planning? And did you have to modify it sort of on the fly as you went along? Some of the planning started before I joined. I joined very early on in the investigation, but there was a skeletal staff who came up with a concept of color teams. So there were, I think, five or so teams that had different subject matters, and each one was assigned a color. So I co-ran the gold team, as we called it, which looked into President Trump's role in the January 6th attack. And then there were other teams. There was a green team that investigated the financial aspects of the January 6th rally and the attacks. There was a red team that looked at those who actually were outside the fence and engaged in the attack on the Capitol. There was a blue team that looked into the law enforcement response. And there was a purple team that looked into the role of domestic violent extremists and social media. One of the interesting things to me, John, among the many is with, I guess this is inherent in a congressional investigation, but despite some of the complaints, this was a bipartisan committee. Yeah, you have different dynamics between the folks, the members who were involved, and then also the staff members. How'd that play out during the course of the investigation? What was the sort of 
the interactions between the staff members and you know how did it kind of impact the investigation? Yeah, it's a highly unusual committee, may even be unique. I can't think of another, but maybe there has been at some point one where there was really just one staff. So instead of having a majority staff and a minority staff, there was just one staff. Now, I also had a reporting line directly to Liz Cheney, as well as to my immediate supervisor within the staff, but there was just one staff and there really were no differences of opinion on anything based on political party. Now, with regard to the investigation, obviously in casual conversation within the office, we would have fun talking about politics and there were very different views among Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives. But in terms of the you know, investigation, while obviously there were differences of opinion on how to proceed with certain things or what strategy or tactics to use, it was never based on political or party affiliation. John, if I could turn to the documents that you all had to obtain, and I'm going to preface this by saying we all were watching. Literally, the whole country was watching. You were reported on extensively. So I'm not sure you did this in a fishbowl, but you certainly did it in a way that perhaps had more scrutiny than a typical investigation. And we all watched with bated breath, I would add as well, to waiting to see how it would turn out. But you all had to do some significant legal work to get some documents from certain witnesses. So, so I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through the legal strategies you guys utilize to obtain and compel production and any related or ancillary litigation that was engaged in. Yeah, that was one of the most important aspects of the investigation and also one of the most challenging because not only did we need the documents, we needed to get them quickly because we wanted to get them not just before the committee expired, but before we interviewed the witnesses. And obviously we received documents on sort of a rolling basis. So in some situations, we had to interview people with fewer documents than we would have liked to have had and that we would have had if we'd had more time. But because we were on the clock, we had to move quickly towards some of these depositions and transcribed interviews. But we received a ton of extremely helpful documents from the National Archives under the Presidential Records Act, but not as early as we would have liked, in part because there was litigation. President Trump challenged the archives' decisions to produce certain documents that ended up in litigation all the way up to the Supreme Court denying cert. And then there was also just the practical challenge that, you know, while the people at the National Archives, I'm sure, are very good people, dedicated public servants, I don't think they were really used to something like this where you had a huge production of largely electronic documents on a very fast time frame. So they're, I'm sure, used to producing paper documents, probably used to disclosing the documents of former presidents once the time period under the presidential records runs out, so they have years to prepare for that. But this was something that had to be done very quickly. And so we got documents on a rolling basis, but not nearly as quickly as I would have liked. Then, of course, we got a lot of documents from witnesses themselves. And most of the time, that was because we sent them a subpoena. And... We found a lot of extremely helpful documents that were not at the archives. A lot of people were using text messages on personal cell phones or email with their personal email accounts where those were extremely helpful to us. But then there were also some challenges. There were some people who refused. Some even claimed a Fifth Amendment act of production claim. And that's a situation where they claim that the mere act of producing the documents would itself be potentially incriminating. Now, I don't think that that was 
a correct use of the act of production doctrine, but we didn't have a whole lot of time to litigate that. So there were a lot of challenges in getting the documents. I'm sure there are some documents that still exist out there that we never got that we would have loved to have gotten, but we got enough that we were able to really effectively question the witnesses. Can I ask, John, there's a burden to getting the documents and a challenge. And obviously the timing issue for you all is different than it might be in a lot of investigations. And there's the secondary aspect of it, of what you do with them once you get them. And how do you, especially on a tight timeline, when you might have a, you know, a witness interview or deposition upcoming, sort of do triage to look at the documents you need. How did you approach that? Yeah, we had to get very quickly sometimes. And sometimes we had to throw several people at it, but we were not like a big law firm where you've got dozens of associates or paralegals that you can throw at something. It was sort of an all hands on deck. Let's all look at this as quickly as we can. In some cases, if it was voluminous, we'd use keyword searches, but typically for an individual witness, there'd be a small enough production that we could get through it quickly with a team of people, but it had to be done sometimes, you know, in a very short time frame. And sometimes we had to litigate in order to get documents. In terms of the witnesses, Mike, I'm going to pitch it over to you to talk to John about how they handled witnesses. Sure. And I, I think this actually goes along with another follow-up question I had about the documents, but one of the things that was reported on the most was the committee's relationship and interaction with maybe people who, who didn't want to appear. So obviously we sort of followed the Steve Pannon saga and things like that. You obviously knew that some witnesses were not going to be willing to cooperate. So it doesn't mean you ignore them, I assume. I'm curious, sort of what was the discussion and the strategy around witnesses we know are going to be difficult or maybe refuse to cooperate? So there are different categories of witnesses. The vast majority of them, I would say, were cooperative. And in some cases, that's because they thought it was just the right thing to do, that they needed to tell the truth and be cooperative with the committee. Some cases, I think it was just because that's what you do when you get a subpoena. It's not a voluntary process. But there were other categories of people who were less compliant. Some, you mentioned Steve Bannon, just outright refused to come in or produce documents. So the House held him in criminal contempt. So I went over to the Justice Department, the U.S. Attorney's Office, made a decision to bring a criminal case against him. But then there were also people who wanted to avoid that outright contempt, who would come in and be less than cooperative. There were some people who, surprisingly, despite having been very high-level officials in the White House or elsewhere, and obviously very bright people, had memory lapses, or they wanted to argue with us and be evasive. And so as you might know, that's something that skilled lawyers deal with all the time in investigations, whether it's internal corporate investigations or in litigation and depositions. And that's where the documents come in, as well as testimony from other witnesses. And so sometimes you have to really be prepared to pin down a witness and challenge what they say based on what is in their documents or what other witnesses have told you. And then there are the ones that just took the Fifth Amendment. And that was also very frustrating. But there was very little that we could do about that. The committee chose to respect the Fifth Amendment assertions. Interestingly enough, there's some legal question of whether or not Congress has to actually recognize the Fifth Amendment as a valid privilege. But the decision was made to not litigate that, but to respect the invocation of the privilege. And several witnesses ended up invoking the Fifth Amendment. To that point, when you had a witness, because I imagine for some witnesses you understood before an interview, for instance, that they were going to take the Fifth. I'll point to the deposition that you did of John Eastman, because I think that's, that was one where maybe you anticipated that he was going to take that approach. 
is there discussions beforehand about, is it worth going through this? How many questions do you ask? Just have them say, say five before you call it. Now, what were those discussions like? Yeah. Basically, the decision was we didn't want to go through our entire outline that we would have used had the witness been cooperative and ask every single question and make the witness take the fifth. But we did think it was important to ask the most important questions and to ask a few questions on each topic. So we had a very detailed outline going into the deposition of John Eastman that we would have used had he been cooperative and answered the questions, but we didn't go through every question. And we went through the most important questions on each topic. And when it became clear that he wasn't going to answer anything on that topic, we moved on to the next topic. And, you know, you brought up John Eastman, and, and that was an example of also challenges in getting documents because he's one of the people who claimed a Fifth Amendment act of production privilege to producing documents, saying that the mere act of him giving us the documents he had would have been incriminating. Now, I think that was totally wrong. I think the documents themselves may have been incriminating, but I don't think the act of producing them to us would have been incriminating. But we didn't have time to litigate that. So what we ended up doing is deciding that at least some of his relevant emails might have been on a server of his former employer, Chapman University. So we sent a subpoena to Chapman University to get his emails and other documents. He objected to that, went into court in California and sought an injunction. He was unsuccessful in that. We all, on the other hand, were unsuccessful in our argument that none of these could be privileged because they were on the Chapman University server. So the judge decided that he would do a privilege review and Eastman was able to claim privilege over certain things. And he was an attorney representing the president. So... The judge did uphold some of his privilege claims, but rejected a lot of his privilege claims. And we were very successful in that litigation and that we got a lot of really important documents where Eastman was claiming privilege. And the judge even relied on the crime fraud exception, saying that the former president and John Eastman were involved in an effort to commit fraud or a crime. And therefore, some documents that would otherwise be covered by the attorney-client privilege had to be produced. Before I kick it to Tom, for some questions about the hearing, which I think were really interesting. I'll just make a quick plug because I think the testimony, if you can call it that, that John Eastman gave where he, he took the fifth, he did the questioning. I believe the transcript of that is is public. I've seen it for our listeners out there. It's very short, but it's actually almost comical. And John did a really pretty good job and seemed like maybe had a little bit of fun with it at times. So it's worth a read. John, I'd like to now turn to the hearings. And perhaps the American public thinks this is the signature component of the January 6th committee work, although I hope they, after this podcast, they understand that much more went in. But how were the hearings organized? And more importantly, how did you think through on the planning stage from your position all the way up to the representatives who were many ways the public face during the time of the hearings? The hearings were divided up largely topical. So there were hearings regarding the hearing regarding the pressure on the vice president to unilaterally overturn the results of the election. There was one on President Trump's efforts to politicize the Department of Justice and use that to try to overturn the election. There was pressure on state and local officials, as well as the use of the so-called fake electors. These are the Trump electors who went and cast their votes and certified them in states that Joe Biden won. There was a hearing early on about the big lie and the role that that had in the attack on the Capitol. There was one on the 187 minutes between when the president finished his speech at the Ellipse and went back to the White House and when he 
ultimately gave a videotaped address asking people to leave the Capitol. And then there were some other ones that sort of popped up. There was one that was specifically Cassidy Hutchison, just because she had such explosive testimony and the committee wanted to get that out quickly. But for the most part, the other hearings were topical. You mentioned Cassidy Hutchinson. Her testimony was just dynamic and dynamite, and it was on video. I wanted to use that example to ask you about the use of video and the, really the power the committee brought to the public by using video in the hearings and explore that topic with you. Yeah, I thought it was very compelling, and it was one of the things that the committee did very well. And it may have been hard to do had there been a majority and a minority that were fighting with each other. So these hearings were a little bit more scripted, although, you know, I want to be careful about using that term because you never know exactly what the live hearing witnesses are going to say. And so you have to sort of make some decisions on the fly. So it wasn't entirely scripted, but it was more so than I think a typical hearing would be. And in terms of the depositions were, aside from some of the very early ones, those were videotaped and we were able to use excerpts of those throughout the hearings. And that was what turned out to be, you know, among the most powerful parts of the hearing were that we were able to weave in the testimony of a large number of witnesses who weren't there in person, because it just wouldn't have been practical to call all those people as live witnesses and try and call on all of them. So we had the most important witnesses there in person, and then we were able to weave in a lot of deposition testimony that had been videotaped in order to make a really kind of compelling story for the American people. So John, you yourself did some questioning of, of witnesses at the hearing, specifically led the questioning of, of Judge Ludic, who I believe you clerked for many years ago. A two-part question for you. One, I've questioned a lot of witnesses, but never on that sort of public scale. Mm -hmm. so what was the preparation like for doing it in that setting, one? And two, what was it like questioning somebody in that setting that you had this relationship with in a lot of ways as having formerly been his clerk? Yeah. So when I clerked for Judge Ludwig on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit right after law school, he said that if any of his former clerks ever argued in front of him, he would spend the entire month doing nothing but preparing for that case because he wanted to get ready and try and be as difficult as he could probably with his former clerk. I thought this was my chance to turn the tables, but did not because the goal was not to trip him up. It was to try and get information to the American people. And Judge Ludwig had an important role both in terms of advising the former vice president, Mike Pence, on his role. So in that sense, he was sort of a fact witness because he he did have a role in all of this and he was able to recite what he did and the advice he gave, but he was also there as sort of an expert witness because he was able to talk very knowledgeably about his interpretation of the Constitution and his very strong and obviously correct view that the vice president did not have the authority to unilaterally overturn the results of the election. And interestingly enough, John Eastman, who we were talking about earlier, also clerk for Judge Ludwig. And so Judge Ludwig explained why his former law clerk, John Eastman's theories were just completely wrong. And I thought Judge Ludwig gave some of the most compelling testimony when he explained that he believed that former President Trump was a clear and present danger to our democracy. And I think that was one of the clips that was most often covered by the news. And keep in mind, for those who don't know, Judge Ludwig is as conservative as they get. I clerked for Judge Ludwig and then for Justice Thomas, and 
Judge Ludig was probably the more conservative of the two. And he hasn't changed his political philosophy. He's still a conservative, but he probably believes there's nothing more conservative than trying to preserve our Constitution. Yeah, and one of the interesting things, I think, of the testimony that I think came across but sometimes got lost was that a lot of the witnesses were conservative, right? They were people who yes. worked in the White House. Or a lot of ways that made it more impactful. You sort of mentioned that the hearings were more scripted. I want to be careful with that term for good reason than, than maybe normal. Were there any surprises? Was anybody sort of go off entirely off script? Of course, it's like a trial. There's always going to be some kind of surprise. So the biggest surprise by far was actually the hearing you mentioned where I had an opportunity to question some witnesses. And so I was sitting up at the dais with the members. And as they did, typically they took a brief recess. I think the chairman said a 10-minute recess to give the witnesses a break, to give the members a chance to talk with each other, give people an opportunity to use the restroom if they needed and perhaps most importantly, give the news channels an opportunity to run some commercials and make some money. So it was a 10-minute recess. Then the members walked back out to the dais. I went with them, sat down. The chairman sat down and immediately gaveled back in. Congressman Pete Aguilar, who's now the number three Democrat in the House, turned to me and said, no witnesses. There are no witnesses. And the witnesses did not come back from their break, but the chairman had gaveled back in and all the national media was covering it live, so we had to start. Fortunately, it was not my turn to speak. It was Congressman Aguilar's turn to speak. And so he went through some of the things he had planned to say. And when it got to the questions for witnesses, he had to skip over that because there were no witnesses. And he just very deftly kept going and then came back and started asking questions of the witnesses once they were there and seated. And I bet most viewers didn't even notice it because Congressman Aguilar handled it so well, but it went a little bit out of chronological order because he had to start talking about things that happened later and then go back and ask the witnesses once they got back to the table. Did you have to sneak the witnesses in or was it, was it during a commercial break, another commercial break? How did they come back in without anybody noticing? Yeah, so they just came back in and I think the cameras were focused on Congressman Aguilar and... Hopefully, people who are viewing at home weren't able to see that the witnesses came in. So there was like, you know, camera facing towards the witness and cameras facing towards the members. And I think they just show the view of the cameras facing towards the members. One more question before I kick this back to Tom here. You described before the different teams, you know, the gold team, the green team, which is a really interesting way to organize the investigation. The hearing days weren't necessarily organized the same way. Was there sort of a joint group that was deciding the best way to present the case after the investigative steps had taken place? Yeah. So each hearing had one or two members of Congress who were the leads for that hearing and did most of the questioning, which I thought was very effective. So it's different from a typical hearing where each member has five minutes of questioning. You may have seen this during some of the Supreme Court confirmation hearings. And it doesn't work very well because with five minutes, you get to ask a question or two and there's very little opportunity to pull on any one thread. So this was done differently, where there was a lead member or two members who did most of the questioning. And then similarly for the staff, we assigned one or two senior investigative counsel or investigative counsel to be the lead as far as helping that member prepare. And as I referenced, the one that I did was the one on the pressure on the vice president to overturn the results of the election. But we had somebody assigned to be the lead for each one of those hearings. And as you point out, that was very different from 
the responsibility says we had divided up by the color-coded teams. John, we've actually had a question come in from our audience, and it actually ties into the next question I wanted to pose to you, which was the timing challenges. In addition to the very public nature of the work you were doing, like everyone understood, you were under some fairly tight timelines and timing challenges. First of all, how did you guys sort of handle those? And then from our question from our audience, Mike Hunicky, any specific strategies, tips, or tactics you could give us around triaging documents quickly and efficiently, getting those triage documents to someone like you or the investigator who's going to ask the question. And I say that because the Department of Justice has made clear with a new corporate enforcement policy that they want speed. They want speed in documents. They want speed in witness interviews. And they want speed in those types of information, pieces of information turned over. So it really, in my mind, has a broader application. And perhaps there were some lessons learned you could share with us. Yeah, I think the Justice Department's idea of speed is very different from what the select committees was. So the Justice Department tends to move a lot more slowly than the select committee did because they have the luxury of doing that. You know, if there's going to be a change in administration, most of the people who are actually handling a particular case or investigation will stay on. And the approach of the Justice Department usually doesn't change that much when it comes to particular cases when they go from one administration to another. So they usually don't have timelines other than statutes of limitations, but you know those are very long and often they can work out some kind of tolling arrangement if they need to because they have the power to threaten if you don't agree to toll the statute of limitations, we'll go to a grand jury now. So we were under time pressures in terms of weeks and months, not years. And so that was extremely difficult. In terms of the documents, we often knew sort of the kinds of things we were looking for and were able to do some keyword searches and start looking for those right away when we got voluminous productions. But the ones we got from sources other than the archives and other than John Eastman tended to be fairly manageable where we could put a small team on them and get through them quickly. But sometimes in terms of the larger ones, we had to go into the keyword searches and then go back and do a more thorough review later on a document-by-document basis. John, turning a bit to the actual report, so the final kind of work product from the committee, and I imagine a lot of people have not read the report. Uh, It's because it it is long and detailed, even if they're very familiar with the committee. But one of the things that I found really interesting is that compared to some others that you, reports from congressional investigations you might see, I found the report to be extremely detailed, but also to be voluminous in its sort of references and citations to specific documents, specific testimony. Was that a very intentional choice to say we have to really pinpoint exactly what we're saying here and and what the backup we have for it is what went into that decision? And then from a practitioner standpoint, did that make it easier or harder to write the thing? Well, it certainly made it time consuming and we were under time pressures. So that was extremely challenging, but it was important. It was a deliberate decision to have it be very detailed in terms of citations to documents and transcripts, which have been made public. Not every document that was received by the committee has been made public, but the one cited in the report and then the transcripts of videos, uh, the transcribed interviews and depositions have been made public. And it was because we thought that, you know, the former president or his allies could try to deny things that were findings of the report. So we wanted to have it as buttoned up as it could be 
showing that there was actual evidence to support each of the findings of the committee. John, we're uh, unfortunately near our end of our time, but I wanted to end by asking you if you just could give a few personal words on your work on the committee and what the legacy of that might be. Yeah, I hope the legacy is that something like January 6th never happens again. And when I say January 6th, I mean, not just the physical attack on the Capitol, although that was absolutely tragic, but the broader effort to undermine our democracy and to undermine the results of a legitimate election. I hope something like that can never happen again. So that's what I hope is the legacy of it. And I was so proud to be part of it because I thought that the mission of the committee and the dedication of the members, both Republicans and Democrats and the staff all working together, putting partisanship and politics aside to work for the good of the country was really encouraging. What was discouraging is that there were so few Republicans in Congress who had the courage to do that. There were two Republican members on the committee. I think there were a lot more House members who privately think that what Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger did was courageous and correct, but they weren't willing to take the political risks to stand up. Well, John, I personally took a lot of comfort when I heard that you were joining the committee. Um, Thank you. You're just the type of person, especially given your background, who would add some credibility and obviously did a really good job. So thank you for your service on the committee. With that in mind, I had planned a really sort of tough question for you to finish this off, asking you about what's next, what everybody's asking, what's going to be next with your path. But instead, I will throw you a softball. Since you've had some time now, I assume since the, the committee ended and you haven't decided your next adventure, anything you've been reading or watching that you would recommend to the audience here? Well, there is a book that I highly recommend. Mike, our mutual friend, Chad Boudreau, who is the general counsel of Huntington Ingalls Industries, the nation's largest shipbuilder for the military. And he's also a former Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security official, has written a book called Scavenger Hunt. And it's the story of a counselor to the Attorney General of the United States who comes across a national security crisis, and I won't tell you too much about what it is because I don't want to spoil it, but it explains the, the story of how this fictional character has to try and help protect our country by getting to the bottom of this national security crisis that he stumbles upon. It's extremely well-written and really informed by Chad's knowledge of the Department of Justice, and so it has a ton of historical tidbits about the history of the department and about the Justice Department building, the Robert F. Kennedy building that I didn't even know about from my time at the Justice Department. So it's a fun and uh, informative read. So I highly recommend it. Again, it's called Scavenger Hunt by Chad Boudreaux. Yeah, I just started that myself. So far, so good. Well, gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I wanted to thank you, John, for joining Mike and I on this episode of Hughes Hubbard and Reed's All Things Investigations. Thank you so much.